Welcome to the Nobles You podcast. Thanks for listening, and we are happy you are with us. My name is Mike Kalin, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Nobles. I'll be your host today. As always, we first want to explain the purpose of the podcast and what we're hoping to provide you. On this podcast, we speak with faculty and staff members, all involved with our work related to teaching and learning, academic technology, DEI culture and practices, socio-emotional learning, and more. Our faculty and staff here have a great deal of expertise on a wide range of subjects, and through the podcast, we hope to learn from our guests who provide insight into the opportunities and challenges in the fascinating world of education. Today, we're excited to speak with Deb Harrison, a member of our science faculty, girls squash coach for many, many years, and member of our faculty since 1981. Deb, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Great. So I'm wondering if you could first describe your path to Nobles and what you were doing prior to accepting the job here. Um, I was teaching at Pomfret School for two years, which I did immediately out of college. And I was teaching biology and an IPS class and coaching squash and lacrosse. And I was the first female science department member at Pomfret, which I'm very proud of because the the ink on the Title IX wasn't very dry at that point. So pretty excited to look back and realize how important that was. That's amazing. So moving from Pomfret, what attracted you to come to Nobles? I had spent the summer in Andover uh, working in the summer session, both as a teaching fellow and then as an actual teacher. And I really thought Boston was wonderful. I'd never spent much time around here. And I also had a, in the back of my mind all through college and prior that I might head off to med school someday and be a pediatrician. And I also loved teaching due to summers of teaching swimming and so forth. And I wasn't ready to jump in. So I thought coming to Boston might be kind of a cool next step for that. And I, I loved Pomfret, but I just felt like it would be kind of fun after a couple of years to try out the Boston area. As luck would have it, one of my colleagues is Charlie Putnam, one of Elliot and Laura Putnam's kids and as a friend and he said you know there's a school outside of Boston where my dad was the head and where I grew up you ought to you ought to take a look at it and I did and I met Ted Gleason and interviewed with him which was a lot of fun as anyone will tell you who interviewed at any point with him and then the rest is history it, it worked out and um, I came to Noble. We're lucky you're here. So you arrived in 1981. Just curious about what are some of your early memories of your time here? Oh, many. Um, school's smaller. I think the graduating class was about 85-ish. The dress code was what you might expect from all the photos you've seen on the walls. Jacket and tie for boys and for and men. And for girls and women, um, we were only allowed to wear pants, long pants after Thanksgiving and until spring break. Most of the leadership of the school was um, male at that point. And um, the middle school was still not co-ed. The school hadn't gone co-ed fully really all that many years before I got there, maybe five or something. We were all in the schoolhouse. So there was no Baker building and no middle school building, but there was assembly. A lot of the things that we all hold dear about the place were, in fact, very much a part of it back then. Yeah, we didn't have technology. And if you wanted to make copies of something, 
it was either that weird blue mimeograph stuff, or you could line up behind a very small photocopier and, uh, you know, take your turn and copy quality is pretty crummy. So those were some of the things that were pretty, pretty, pretty much defined the place. It's interesting here, I mean, a lot of differences, but that assembly being such a stable part of the nobles experience, which still certainly lives on today. Um, you mentioned some of the classes that you taught at Pomfret. I'm curious what were some of the early classes you taught here at Nobles? Uh, when I first arrived, I taught ninth grade biology, and that's all I taught. And uh, we did not have, I don't believe we had honors level courses at that point. It was biology or chemistry or physics. And uh, that went on for just a couple of years, and we then moved to um, having different versions of each core course. And I did that for a few years, but somewhere early on, I picked up an anatomy and physiology elective and um, added that in for a while. That was, that was lots. And then I think just after the middle school was built, a year or so, uh, we had another section, I believe, of seventh grade. And the teacher we had who was covering both seventh and eighth grade couldn't cover it all. So I became a crossover teacher and I taught seventh grade science and biology and anatomy, which was a lot of fun. So that added to what I taught, and that went on for a while, and uh, eventually picked up some environmental science. I did a, a year of AP Bio, and Fred Skolko was on sabbatical in uh, 2000. And eventually, environmental science evolved, really, into a full-year AP course. It's one of the very last AP courses that the College Board created, so it was, it was quite in its infancy early on when we were offering uh, a semester elective in environmental science. And this is really all building on the foundation of Fred Skolko, who really pioneered a lot for our department, including a new building, as well as uh, enriching the curriculum with environmental science and other electives. You're really alluding to this. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit. You're one of the people who has the best insight into the evolution of the science curriculum. Is there any other changes that you find notable as you look back over the years? Yes, I would say a big one is that um, for a while, until the fall of 1996, we did everything that our department was offering to students in the uh, area called Computer Street, which is where the ISS team has their offices. There were two biology labs, I think just one chem lab and one physics lab, so we were scrunched. But even then, we were offering a really hands-on experience in a tiny space. Uh, there was a greenhouse tacked onto that end of the of the building, which I really miss a lot. Um, so when we opened this building, it was the most extraordinary thing to have classrooms as large as we have. Maybe they were twice the size, it seems, of what we had come from. And we were able to do what we were doing even more. We were very heavily subscribed already as a department. Kids were taking a lot of science. Now we had the space for it, and technology was, was uh, coming in with us. And we had a technology support person all of a sudden we moved into the building. And I think, I think one, one big change over time in our curriculum has been the opportunity to incorporate technology and in my realm, you know, running DNA gels. We didn't do that initially when I came. And now I think of how simple it is to do it and all the technology available in chemistry and physics. Um, has helped sort of redefine and reshape the coursework that we've offered 
both elective AP and core course. Um, but just these spaces are wonderful, teaching spaces with lots of um, space for hands-on experiential learning. I was interested to hear that evolution. And then it's, um, you know, I think our students take for granted so many of the pervasive technologies that they use today and have not a clue that it didn't always used to be the case, for sure. Um, curious about a timely topic around climate change, a conversation in the news a lot, in newspapers, um, civilians and educators both are talking about climate change. Here's when it first entered the science curriculum. It's an interesting question. I, I would say and Fred Skolko could weigh in because he was teaching environmental science. I think we were be beginning even biology around the time I arrived. You know, I used the expression, the greenhouse effect. And it seemed kind of overly simplified, you know, that solar radiation could come into the atmosphere and kind of get stuck like in a greenhouse and warm up the planet. But we didn't have nearly the conversation about things like atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration, wacky breaking temperature records over and over. We weren't quite there, but certainly, you know, people were talking about it and we were, we were injecting it into the curriculum, but probably mostly in the environmental science class and a little bit in biology. And even then, though, I think, I think a lot of kids had a sense that, yeah, this is, this is really, this is, this is a real thing without knowing a lot. And um, so it, it just more and more has been a, a focus probably in non-environmental science classes because in the chemistry class, it certainly can be woven in atmospheric chemistry and so on. But it's, it's never been really treated as maybe. Uh, when we've talked about it, we've talked about it as something that is happening. And um, I, kids come, have come in every year more and more savvy. They know a lot. They get it. Um, certainly the last couple of years have taught everybody a lot more. But they, they come in realizing that, yeah, this, there is science behind this. This is happening. They're curious. They want to understand it. And they also are open to the fact, I think there's hopeful optimism at the same time it's sobering, but I think they're open to the fact that there is real opportunity for creative entrepreneurial change. And, you know, we can talk about negative tipping points. We also, I make sure we talk about positive tipping points. And I think they believe that those really are possibilities. It's good to hear. You know, the reason why I asked the question is just the topic is so politicized today. And there are all sorts of messages all over the place, especially on the internet or on social media, denying that it's even a problem or that it exists or that it's all a hoax. So it's actually you know, quite relieving to hear that our students come in with curiosity and a desire to learn about it. Um, so taking a step back a little bit, you've now had decades of teaching experience. And from your, your perspective, what characteristics or qualities define excellent education or an excellent educator? Well, my opinion is only one of many. I, I... I, I can talk about sort of, I think, what a lot of us aspire to, what I aspire to. Some of it really could be considered discipline specific, but a lot of it is just what we all hope to be good at. I think we need to be really curious and really interested in being lifelong learners. And certainly with the things I teach, if a day doesn't go by where I, I just don't, but I haven't learned something, I picked up something. I think um, that should fuel passion to bring it back into a classroom setting. 
and do something cool with it. Um, I guess the good news and the bad news is teaching uh, environmental sciences, which is what I have this year, four sections of it, the planet is writing quite a curriculum or writing an enrichment curriculum. And there's a lot of material to work with. Uh, but I think passion and empathy for kids, it's hard being a kid. Uh, we all think back to when we were their age. It's not always easy. Um, and maybe there's more things that make it less so, even than when we were kids. Flexibility, humor. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's what I would say. No, I love that. I mean, I think your point about curiosity and lifelong learning really resonates. I think that's come up with other conversations about how many teachers enjoy not only teaching, but the process of learning information themselves on a daily basis. Um, shifting gears a little bit to the athletic world, you were an inspirational coach in the girls' squash program for many years. And how would you describe your coaching philosophy for those years? That's really, that's very generous of you to say that. Um, well, you have to love what you're doing. And you have to love loving that with, um, sharing that with kids. and. Um, working, I guess, in mutually to, to just build the joy and the enthusiasm and the resilience that everyone needs to bounce back. And never been, I was never a coach to yell at anybody. <laughs> Kids put a lot of pressure on themselves. I think it's important to recognize that and to support them and be able to be honest, but also remind them about having a positive mindset. I think there are so many great life lessons from athletics. And probably I could say that if I were really experienced in theater and in music at a high level. Um, there are lessons to be learned there that they're also pretty similar from athletics. But I think, you know, it's pretty simple, but, you know, learning to push beyond limits that you were sure were, were the end point for what you could do. And to just to help everybody grow, you know, in a ladder-based sport where there's a hierarchy, there's the number one and there's the number 20, whatever, how big the ladder of the team is, everyone matters. And everyone's joys and accomplishments, even at the number 20, should be just as exciting as what the number one did. And even with a sport people might define as an individual sport, it doesn't happen unless every part of the team shows up, does the job with a lot of humility, and that everyone is invested in everybody else. And I feel so fortunate that I've been able to, I think, grow and learn probably with the athletes, uh, young women I've been so fortunate to work with. And there's just, it's really intense. You know, at the end of a squash season, you feel like, wait, what happened? Where'd they go? So Nobles, as many people know, is really committed to the teacher-coach model. And what you just said about your coaching philosophy resonates. I'm wondering if you could describe what you think the similarities are between the teaching experience and the coaching experience. Yeah, I think a lot of it probably comes down to believing in oneself and pushing limits, but reasonably and fairly in fairness to oneself, that working hard pays off in a lot of different ways. Um, and that as a coach, just as I care about doing as a teacher, that um, it's the little things and maybe the bigger things that all matter. And, you know, every kid has, their tri has his or her triumphs as well as low moments and 
got to be tuned in to each kid to so they know that you see them. Yeah, that, that notion of student relationships makes a lot of sense. It's something that I increasingly appreciate about Nobles and our emphasis on student relationships. And it definitely seems like it does tie that teaching and coaching piece together. All right, so you've been here at Nobles for over 40 years. Why have you stayed? Oh, my. Because <clears throat> I love what I'm doing. You know, I guess being a part of many parts of this community, just as quite a number of others have, it's not something unique to me. <clears throat> you know, living on campus for a long time, I don't know, 36 years, raising three kids in a campus community, um, being involved in athletics and obviously teaching and having advisees, get to know kids in a number of different ways. And I think this is just such a beautiful piece of the earth. It's a, been a wonderful place to live. And I feel grateful for all the connections um, that we are able to have. And I also think, you know, back to sort of aspiring to be a lifelong learner. I love learning. And, you know, I've learned a lot from kids. They, 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 they're good teachers. And just learning because it helps me do what I'm doing better. I get excited about hearing something on NPR and going, oh, we could do something with that. Really cool. And then I love creating curriculum a lot. So I think that, that there's a lot of fuel, a lot of really positive energy that comes with that. And um, I just, I really enjoy being around kids. You know, I think I'd be pretty bored. No offense to adults. But if, if all I ever did was see adults in an office situation that didn't lend itself to curiosity. And I think maybe the last part of my answer is, I think the lines for me blur between vocation and avocation. And I feel so lucky that the things I really love about just being a person walking around this planet, I get to share that um, in a variety of different ways in what I do to make the classes I teach. I hope motivating and fun for kids so they'll push themselves it's a beautiful note to end on uh, but before we end anything else in your mind relating to your teaching your coaching your time at nobles no although i have three kids who um when you're a parent you realize what you're dedicated to is what your peers who work with your own children are dedicated to it's quite humbling to watch that play out with your kids and to see those relationships continue also for a long time. All right. Thanks, Deb. So before we conclude, I just wanted to put in a quick plug uh, for the Nobles U podcast. You can notice how thoughtful Deb was, and we've had several other great interviews. So if you're curious, the Nobles U podcast is available on Apple and Spotify. Um, if not, we hope to see you next time. And thank you again, Deb. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike.